Good morning. Today's scripture is Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, which begins on page 620 in the Pew Bibles around you. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations." Good morning. It's good to be with you all. Let's uh, pray and then we'll, we'll get into the text together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and effective and powerful. We ask that as we sit under the ministry of your word, would you come and give us the spirit of grace? Would you give us your Holy Spirit, in this time to hear and to respond to your word, God, would you make our hearts tender and receptive to the things that you have for us this morning? Would you conform us into the image of Jesus? And we ask that in and through the ministry of your word this morning, that you would glorify your name. Would you make your name holy among this spiritual family? Would you let your kingdom come and your will be done here among us as it is in heaven? God, would you feed us and nourish us with our portion today? By your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So look with me uh, in your notes. We'll just jump right in. Little review from last week. Uh, we're currently spending a few weeks uh, in Isaiah chapter 61, we're going to preach this passage again next week uh, with the intention of introducing and outlining a few burdens that the Lord has placed on the hearts of our elders uh, for our spiritual family in this coming year. Uh, at the start of our year, uh, I want to talk about several things that I think the Lord has for us that I hope will shape our life together and our ministry together over the course of this next year and then I pray in years to come. So through the fall, we uh, consistently talked together about uh, being called by the Lord into a season of building the house. And we'll likely pick that up here in a couple weeks as we jump back into the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, but this speaks of us feeling the, the call from the Lord to reorient our efforts as a spiritual family around pursuing the things of the Lord together as our first pursuit. So you could say 
you know, Jesus's words in Matthew 6, where he says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and his righteousness, that this would be the first pursuit of our spiritual family together, as well as this means seeking to grow in the knowledge of God's ways so that the whole of our lives, both individually and corporately, would be organized and ordered around that which he calls good and right and true. Letter C, so as those that live in times marked by widespread decay of public morality, the death of institutions and the growing acceptance of immorality and deception we see not just in our own communities but even worldwide, I think there is a specific need in our moment as the people of God to set ourselves out to work, to build God's house, to build our lives around his ways, to build godly families according to God's patterns. So Isaiah 61 discusses the people of God that will set out to work in repairing the ruined cities. It's, it's where this passage ends. This type of people sets out to do a type of work, and it's uh, imagined in, in the figurative way of rebuilding cities that have been torn down and desolate places. However, the passage doesn't merely command God's people to set out to do this work, right? It, it would be one thing if the Lord showed up to his people and said, hey, get to work, guys. There's, there's all this stuff that needs to get done. Uh, why don't you pick up a shovel and pick up a, a trowel and get after the labor, right? He, he could have done that. He could have come and commanded them to get to work, but he doesn't do that. What he does is he actually paints the portrait of the type of people that he is going to work by his grace and the animating power of his spirit to make them the kind of people that will rise up and do this kind of work. I, I, I love it. I love that the Lord doesn't just tell us what to do. He actually grips our hearts and imaginations by telling us what he is going to do by way of saving us and healing us and delivering us and bringing us out of bondage and setting us free and bringing us into a, a, a spirit of liberty in his glorious grace. And he says, as that happens, this is the kind of work that's going to happen. This is what's going to be the outflow of a people who have tasted and touched the liberating, saving, healing power of my grace. So he's not just setting out to command us to do something. He paints a portrait of a picture of the kind of people that are going to be empowered by God's spirit to engage the kind of work that I think is in front of us. So last week, letter E, we looked at the anointing that rested on Jesus to usher in the reign of God's kingdom through offering salvation, healing, and deliverance to those that are poor, wounded, bound up in captivity. In fulfilling the promise of Isaiah, Jesus introduced the age in which this kind of anointing is experienced and received by his church, right? We need the life that's offered in Christ to be manifested in us and in our ministry together if we are to even begin to hope to accomplish the kind of work that I think is in front of us. We need to be the kind of people that experience Isaiah 61, 1, 2, and 3 before we can ever hope to be the kind of people that do the repairing ruins kind of work. 
to receive the anointing of Christ, both in our own lives and in our ministry together, to walk out the, the, what it means to be recipients of his grace and his life-changing power. So this passage declares that the result of this work will be that the people of God will be called oaks of righteousness. Look at that in uh, verse three, the end of this. He's gonna grant those that mourn in Zion, giving them this glorious exchange that we talked about last week unto this reality. Take the word that in verse three and underline it. He's gonna do this for a purpose, right? There's a purpose that he is seeking to accomplish. The reality of this kind of life-giving grace that the Spirit works in and among his people is unto something. The result is that we would be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord so that he would receive glory in the world. So look at letter G. My goal for this morning as we use this metaphor to look at some principles that I, I pray are gonna frame and guide our labors together as we set out to experience God's grace and partner with him in his work in our lives and in our city, here's my goal. I, I, I pray that by the Spirit's grace this morning, he would infuse us with confidence to set out in doing meaningful work that's in line with his kingdom, in our own lives, in the lives of others, in accordance with our calling. And I want to do this by looking to God's word to dignify the slow, seemingly insignificant work that we all experience in our lives, right? Like one of the th reasons that I love that he calls them oaks of righteousness, he calls us oaks of righteousness, is this glorious reality that an oak tree takes time right? It's not an annual sunflower patch. They're beautiful, right? But they grow up fast. They give their beauty for a minute and then they fall over and they die as soon as they sprouted, right? The, the image isn't, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a, a big old field of wildflowers, glorious in their uh, beauty and splendor here today, gone tomorrow. He says, I'm going to make these people like sturdy, steady oaks that stand, stand by my grace, are unshaken in the waves of this world. But the problem with an oak tree is it takes a really, really, really long time. And I think it gives this glorious picture into one of the beautiful realities of kingdom work is oftentimes our labors in the Lord, we may never see the fruit of in our lives. We may never know the extent to which our labors were or were not fruitful until the evaluation day when we stand face to face with Jesus and he tells us what was really going on. All the under the surface things, all of the, the slow growth that it takes to do this kind of work, I pray by looking at this this morning will actually give some guardrails around us to infuse us with courage as we walk through life in all of its monotonous, small, seemingly insignificant moments where the seed of the gospel doesn't look 
anything like the harvest that we might hope for. But the, the goal is fidelity to planting and, and, and obedience to what the Lord has before us. I want to shape our perspectives to settle in for the long game together. This is countercultural in a real profound way. I, I was thinking about it this morning as I was praying. Um, I'm thinking about that moment in the book of Jeremiah. If you're not familiar with Jeremiah, Jeremiah writes his book right when the Babylonians are coming to destroy Jerusalem and they're taking them away into exile. And at this time, there's all these false prophets that keep standing up and going, hey, don't worry, it's not gonna be that long. It's not gonna be that long. It'll be like a, like a blip, a year or two, no big deal. We'll go to Babylon, God will save us and then send us back. And Jeremiah gets the word from the Lord and it essentially is, you're gonna be there for 70 years. So go ahead and settle in. I want us to have a little bit of this tension that exists in the Christian life of, yes, we are called to live like Jesus is coming back. We're called to have an eternal perspective, living with a watchfulness and a sobriety that if our master were to come, we would be found ready for him. And we are to live with a generations long view of what fidelity in the kingdom looks like, that we make decisions that if the Lord were to tarry, there are fruitful benefits coming generations because of it generations down the road. And I want us to buckle up and settle in and set our face for that kind of work in this seasons to come. Okay, so look at Roman numeral two. God's kingdom reign, right? This is, if we're gonna be infused with life to do meaningful kingdom work, I think we have to look at what, is, what it is we're about. What is God doing in the world? God's kingdom as it's breaking into the world, how are we participants with that work and what, what is he actually doing? So letter A, the kingdom of God, uh, it, just, just by way of quick introduction, is the specific place where God's rule and reign, his dominion and his kingship are experienced in the world, right? So God's the sovereign Lord over everything. That is true. And at all moments, he is accomplishing his purposes. He's unfolding his plans. He's getting his way. However, there are ways that this world does not line up with God's kingdom, right? Anywhere where you see sin and destruction and sickness and brokenness and poverty and destitution and uh, bondage, every place where we see that, that is a place where God's kingdom has not infused this world with his life-giving power, right? What, what we need to do when we look at the world is go, is this what the kingdom of heaven is like? Right In the places where I feel anxiety and fear and, and, and despair, is that the kingdom at work in my life? And the answer is no. Right When we look in our families and there's relational strife and tension and pain and woundedness and hurt, we look and we ask the question, in Jesus's righteous kingdom, are these things present? The answer is no. When we look at our society and our city and our nation and places around us, we ask the question, is this what it will be like on the day when King Jesus sits on his throne in fullness for all? The places where we answer the question no are places where God's kingdom has yet to be 
uh, made known in this world, right? So the kingdom of God isn't just the theological concept that God sits ruler over everything and he's sovereign. It is where his order has broken into the world and his reign is experienced as such, right? So when someone who is far off from Jesus hears the witness of the gospel and their heart is softened by the Holy Spirit and they're born again and they're given ears to hear and a heart to respond and they repent and turn from their darkness and submit their lives to the Lord, the kingdom of heaven has expanded. Right In places where um, sickness or brokenness or internal pain and woundedness uh, flourishes in our lives and we experience the anointing of what Jesus came to do, what we talked about last week, to bind up the broken heart, to liberate the captives, to set people free. When we see that, the kingdom of Christ is expanded. So that is the kingdom of God, right? Letter B. Jesus instructed his disciples, us, to orient our labors and our lives toward submitting to, expanding, and experiencing God's kingdom as our first pursuit, right? And this, is, this comes in a discussion about the basic primary needs of life. He says, more than your need for food and clothing and shelter, Run after experiencing my kingdom and submitting your life to them. And the Father who is good and who sits enthroned over heaven, he will take care of all of your needs. He's not talking to like us comfortable Westerners. Like it's like, hey, before you decide whether to get the third subscription service or not, seek the kingdom. He's going before you put food in your belly, seek the kingdom. Before you decide whether you should, uh, where, where you're going to find your, your coat to keep you warm in this weather outside, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom first, and all these things will be added to you. Letter C, Jesus also instructed his kingdom, or his disciples, to regularly pray for his kingdom to be established on earth, just as it is in heaven. Jesus' kingdom reign is perfectly realized and experienced in heaven. And he asks us and commands us and instructs us, when you pray, pray this way. Pray that God's name would become holy. Pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Letter D. I'm going to give a flyover of the biblical story related to the kingdom. The Bible's clear that God created mankind to be his representatives in expressing his dominion on the earth. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. It's a representative of his reign in the world. It was expressed as we were designed to live in intimate communion with him and then order everything around his commandments, right? He would tell uh, Adam what to do and Adam was gonna go and do it and reflect God's nature by subduing all that was around him in order with God's word. Okay, that was what it means to be made in the image of God. 
Letter E, in sin, Adam abdicated his rightful place of this authority. He actually handed it over, and Satan became, in real ways, uh, the legal authority over the world. Now, not the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority at all times. He's still in control, but there was an access given to Satan as the prince of the power of the air, or the God of this world we see in the New Testament. Letter F. In his life and ministry, this is why deliverance and healing and and the proclamation of forgiveness matters so much in the life of Jesus. He is taking back as a man what rightfully belonged to humanity all along for God. He's coming in and that's the whole thing about plundering the strong man's house. He's going, I have to come in and push back darkness in this world and plunder the house of the adversary so that work can be done. In his life and ministry, Jesus ushered in the age of God's kingdom reign. He did this by walking in perfect obedience to the Father, unlike Adam could do, unlike Israel could do, unlike anyone who had gone before could do. He walked in perfect, submitted obedience to the Father. He did this by binding up the strong man, the devil, and by earning his right to be the king over the earth through his death and resurrection. Here's just a couple scriptures. Uh, you see this, 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy the authority and the the influence of the devil's power in the world. Philippians 2, Jesus came and through his humbling of himself as a man to the point of death, what happens? Because of this, the word therefore, Philippians 2, 9, Therefore, because Jesus came and submitted himself in humble obedience at every moment, even to the point of death, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name. That's shorthand for he made him the Lord over everything. He made him the king, the sovereign. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Letter G. At his ascension, when Jesus was taken up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, he was seated at God's right hand and he was seated as the king of all creation. He now reigns in power until all of his enemies are placed in subjection to him. So right now, there's an odd reality about the world. Jesus is the king and his kingdom has come into this world and we're waiting for all of creation to realize that, right? Like it's not fully realized in its absolute fullness yet. It's real and it's true and it's been inaugurated, but there's lots of creation, lots of parts of creation do not submit themselves up under the feet of the Lord Jesus. We're in this weird tension point where we see Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, enthroned over everything, but we do not yet see his kingdom reign in fullness in this world. Letter H. So Jesus presently expresses his kingdom reign through his church. So how is Jesus reigning right now? Primarily through the ministry of his church. 
Look at Luke 12. In Luke's telling of the same reality of seek first the kingdom, he says another sentence, fear not, little flock, seek the kingdom and fear not, don't be afraid because it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to hand it to you and for you to live up under it. And then he uh, also in Ephesians 1, Jesus now is the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lastly, Jesus situates the great commission under receiving all authority in heaven and earth. He recasts the dominion mandate given to Adam and Eve in himself. Have you ever related the great commission with the fact that Jesus says, now as the king, this is what I want, right? Look at that here. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? I'm the king. I now am the king over all creation. The one that was promised to have the kingdom of God reign over the world, that's me, Jesus is telling his disciples. Now, as the king, here's how we're going to move forward. You go and take my kingdom to the ends of the earth. How do you do that? Witness to my kingdom. That's make disciples, baptizing them. And disciple, teach them to observe what I said. Teach them to observe my ways. So this is what we're about. I, I, I don't know if you catch it. I try to say this a lot. I talk about wanting to be a praying church that pursues God's face and pursues his purposes for our city. Okay, so as the kingdom of God is manifest among us as we experience God's saving grace and his power and his life and his joy and his renewing presence, we give witness to that and we disciple others in walking in obedience to him. Okay, so we want to see as much of that happen in our lives as he will let us, right? We don't get to say what the quantity is, and we're gonna look at that here in a minute. We don't get to define for God, this is what it's gonna look like. All we can do is be faithful to pursue it. And so when we talk about as a church wanting to seek God's face, that's seek the kingdom and his righteousness. And we wanna seek his purposes for our city. That's us saying, we want as much of the kingdom of God to break into Kansas City as he will allow through our weak feeble, uh, immature labors, that we long to see more of his kingdom reign expressed in this city. I want more of it, not less of it. I want to see more of Kansas City conformed into the will and the desire and the life of Jesus Christ than less of it. And he has empowered his church to partner with him in faithfulness and obedience to that. So as we think about that, I want to give you four presuppositions really quickly that I'm, I'm, I'm bringing into this discussion, and then we're going to look at what in the world does oak tree work have to do with it. Here's a couple presuppositions. Number one, this is like summary and presuppositions. Number one, God's kingdom reign began in Christ. 
The, the reign of God's kingdom, the age of God's kingdom reign broke into the world in Jesus Christ. Number two, the church is expanding the boundaries of God's kingdom. That's what it means to be light in darkness. That's what it means to be a city set on the hill. We are seeking to, by his grace, partner with him in seeing his kingdom established in the world. Number three, this is another, another presupposition that's really important. We desire to see as much of our city conform to his kingdom as he will allow. I want to be bold in that. I actually want to see as much of God's kingdom expressed in our spiritual family, our families, our neighborhoods, our city as he will allow, as he has designed in his heart. I don't want us to shy back from that. I don't want us to make apologies for that. I want to see more of God's kingdom made known in our world. I don't think that's like a controversial or it shouldn't be a controversial statement. Number four, here's where we temper that. This will always and only ever be in part until the second coming. Right, so those four things kind of go into the pot and bring us to how are we going to move forward with that. All right, look at page three. So one thing I think about when I think about the work of this oak tree, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, I think one of the gifts that this is to us is to rightly order our expectations. So many times I think we fail to engage in meaningful kingdom work over the long haul in our church or in churches because we fail to rightly shape our expectations related to the size, the scope, and the time involved in such work. Here's, here's what I think happens. I think we get a vision for God's renewing power in the world. And I think it enlivens us and invigorates us because it should. It should. If you're not, uh, ask the Lord to wake your heart up. If you aren't invigorated by the reality of God's kingdom breaking into this world and changing things, ask him to make you invigorated by it. But I think we get a vision of this, right? Like we want to see renewal in our neighborhoods or our city. We want to see renewal around us in our families. And we get invigorated by it. But then we infuse all sorts of worldly measurements of success into that endeavor. And we just get after it. We just start running, right? And then when it doesn't happen the way that we want it to, we fall on our faces. We find out that we're aiming at the wrong things or we're running about it in the wrong ways. And we, and we get bitter and offended and uh, um, despairing in our hearts, right? Because how we imagine this happening is going to shape our ability to stick with it over the long haul. Right? So a lot of times we get infused with this vision and then we just, like we're, we're chomping at the bit to make it happen. And so we run out in our own strength and we don't do the whole like, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. And we fall on our faces and then 
The, the problem that comes in those moments is our temptation is to grow despairing or to draw back or to grow offended. And so I want us to have rightly ordered expectations while we're infused with a vision of what might God do. So as the people of God, we have to have this tension. Here it is. A vision for the radical inbreaking of God's kingdom in the life of the church. We have to have this. We have to have a vision that Jesus's life would infuse the church and expand through this world. Like that is a glorious reality to have that as a vision. And we have to have uh, tempered with that the reality of the slow, patient expansion of God's kingdom purpose as outlined in the New Testament. So many of the parables that Jesus tells to his disciples actually outline the way that the kingdom's gonna break into the world. And it's very counter to what we would imagine. Very counter to how we would see it happening, right? It, it outlines this real slow, quiet, and even like apparently unsuccessful work as it's experienced in the kingdom of heaven. I have two of them here for you on the notes. The first one is the parable of the soils. And essentially it is, Jesus tells this story where the sower goes out into the field. He casts this seed into the field and only one in four take. It's wildly, apparently unsuccessful, right? One gets snatched up by birds right away. One falls on stony ground and it doesn't have time to get rooted in and the sun scorches it and it withers up. One falls in among thorns and the thorns grow up around it and choke it from coming to life. It's only one in four that fall into good soil. Seems wildly unsuccessful, right? But Jesus is trying to re categorize our paradigms of what success are in his work. Then there's other ones, right? He talks about the kingdom being like a seed sown, a really small seed that grows up into this big, glorious um, plant and tree in the garden, or like leaven hidden into a lump of dough that permeates itself through everything. Look at letter D. I want you to see these things. These parables demonstrate several things for us. Number one, kingdom work will be quote unquote less successful than we imagine. We just have to say this and you're like, oh man, you're a downer. Like this is a big old wet blanket on our excitement that we're gonna see the renewal of God's kingdom at work in our city. And I go, yeah, let's do it. Let's just have Jesus's expectations before us as we do it so that we don't show up offended 30 years from now. Hey, I wanna still be running after this vision 30 years from now. I want our church to be alive and invigorated with this vision 30 years from now, 60 years from now, 100 years from now. What would God do in this place if we set that as our vision that we wanna see God do something that it may take a century and a half for him to accomplish? That's the kind of work I wanna be about. But I have to have that on the front end so I don't grow weary and discouraged and despairing all along the way. So it's less successful than we would imagine, right? This is the parable of the soil. Many efforts in seeking to expand Jesus's reign in the world will fall on soil that will not produce fruit. Jesus tells this parable to his disciples to reorient their vision for walking in obedience to his commandments. 
showing that we're not to judge the faithfulness of our labors by whether the seed came to fruition, but by stepping out in faith to cast the seed. So what is success in the kingdom? Is it that the planted seed grows up and harvests? Or is it that you walk out with fidelity, obedience to the command, and you sow the seed? Well, let's just ask the question in Jesus' life. How many people loved Jesus when he was filling their bellies and healing their diseases and driving out their demons, but then when he asked them to submit their life to him, they said, no, thank you, we want a different way. Give us Barabbas. Jesus knew that faithfulness to sowing the seed was what God counts as fidelity and success. Look at number two. Kingdom work not only will be less successful than we imagine, it will be smaller than we desire. We have to come to terms with the reality that most ministry in the church happens in really small, really seemingly insignificant contexts. Many people will never minister beyond two or three people at any given time. We have to be a people willing to get God's evaluation of our labors so that we might not despise the days when they're small, right? We don't want to despise the very things that God has put before us to pour our lives into, right? We don't want to be waiting for the day when it's going to feel uh, infused with all this excitement and joy and I'm going to feel all of this like fulfillment because man, isn't this so successful? I actually need to look at what God's put before me, my children, my family, the, the several relationships around me that I have a, a, a voice to speak into and I need to in those places shape that ministry in accordance with what God calls faithful. Not wait for the day when it's going to be big and exciting and expansive. Number three, kingdom work is going to be less successful than we imagine, smaller than we want, and slower than we hope for. Again, you guys are like, man, this is like a, just putting a big old wet blanket on us. The work of the Great Commission expanding Christ's kingdom in the world, in our case, setting out to rebuild and repair a fallen house, is demonstrated to be much slower than we expect. The process of a seed or an acorn growing into a full plant or leavening, walk, working its way through the lump, takes both time and hiddenness. Think about all the things that are happening in the soil when a seed gets planted into the soil before you ever see an ounce of life with your eyes. I, I read this fascinating thing. I get, I get on these kicks. Uh, Abby always knows what I'm preaching on based on the books that keep showing up in our house. So I had like three or four books uh, on my desk about oak trees. Um, and she was like, oak trees? What are we into right now? <laughs> uh, but... So I read, I read a little bit about oak, oak trees and one of the fascinating things about an oak is when you plant the acorn, uh, it, it sprouts, it's a little late to sprout and then the first year, it only grows two leaves, 
Whereas like a lot of other trees will grow five, six, seven, eight as they're growing up, it only grows two. But what will happen is if you dig up the root ball of an oak tree, the tap root that goes down into the soil actually far surpasses any kind of other tree in the same stage, right? So it's exerting all of its energy to build out a deep root system. I mean, think about that within the life of doing ministry, right? Like think about what it means for us to be rooted and grounded with a sure foundation in Christ Jesus. There's a lot of slowness and a lot of hiddenness. A lot of things that people aren't going to like uh, wow and ooh and awe about that are happening down beneath the surface that we need to see real deep roots go down so that the sturdy tree can grow up that the Lord has for us. So to orient our perspectives this way, we must see how Jesus defines true and lasting greatness. How does Jesus define success? This has to matter to us, right? What we see as successful is what we will value. What you value dictates what you do, and what you value dictates, more importantly, what you do when it's really hard. You will walk through a lot of pain and challenge in your life to get what you want. What we want is what Jesus calls successful, right? So we got to orient our lives that way. Look at page four quickly with me. So I think the Lord wants us to set out to accomplish his work in the world shaped with this as our understanding. Our minds and hearts will grow discouraged or be edified in faith based on what we think success will look like in our labors, right? We want to be pleasing before the eyes of God. We don't want to infuse worldly visions of success into our labors. The image of planting oak trees needs to shape the concept of what we're hoping to accomplish, both in our own lives and the lives of this spiritual family by God's grace. Many Christians, I think, need to regain a vision for what God can do over the whole of a life over the course of generations, even over the course of centuries, right? And this is really hard for us. Look at letter E. Western Christians have to fight against a prevailing cultural water that makes us believe that we can have anything we want, everything we want now, right? We got to fight against the Amazon, have it on your doorstep between four and eight in the morning when you bought it at 7 p.m., we have to fight against that. That is trained into us uh, in, our, in how we see the world. Rarely do we see the world based on what is the impact of this going to be 50 years from now, 100 years from now. If God were to tarry uh, 200 years from now, what would the fruit of this labor, if God breathed in this, what would that be? What would happen if our spiritual family, I mean, just catch this, what would happen if we all together caught a vision to labor in a way that was still providing fruit for this neighborhood and this city 150 years from now? What, what would that look like? What would that change about our labors? What would that change about our lives together? What we saw as valuable and important. What if we set in and said, you know what? Maybe we won't taste the, the full tree of what it is we're planting here. But 
what would it look like for 150 years from now, a faithful gospel witness right in this building, just like there was 150 years ago that we're reaping the benefits from, what would it look like if we set that out and said, God, what you have for us right now, maybe we won't taste it all, but I'm gonna pour my life out so that your kingdom would be expanded in this city and in this world in such a way that it would bless others beyond our own self. Look at letter F. We have to be infused with confidence, understanding that although the seed and the fruit look nothing alike. I mean, think about this, right? You, get, you, you wanna plant an oak tree, and all you have is an acorn, right? You look at the acorn and you go, this thing, right? It's like, doesn't look anything like what it will become. But everything that is needed for its life is contained within it. It is so important, right? How you steward that seed really matters. It really matters for what it's going to become, Because of this, our labors to faithfully sow in plowing and planting seasons will not be in vain. Not because of what we are doing, but because of the nature of the seed, which is God's kingdom work at at work in this world, and because of the fidelity of our God. That's why it matters. Like, let's, let's throw out that we see the fruits of our labors in the way we hope for. And let's just consume together a vision that we will market as success if we walk out fidelity to Jesus through our days and seek to order other lives in accordance with that and call others to that and bring up others under that. That is what I hope for. I, I, I give you a couple places to do that on your own in letter G, uh, just walking through uh, what it might look like in this season for you to ask some questions before the Lord to set this out together. But I'm gonna end us there, amen. Okay, would you all stand?